to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, resiliency, crisis management, and so many more subjects that are all linked um, through that kind of uh, industry. Um, I'd like to remind everyone, if there is a topic you'd like us to talk about on the show or uh, be a guest on the show or find someone to uh, be a guest on the show to talk about a topic, you can send me a suggestion through the Voice America webpage uh, for the show. Underneath the graphic, there is a button, send uh, the host an email or something along those lines. I do get all messages and I do respond to everything. So please feel free, send me a note if you do have any ideas. I'd like to remind everyone that I will be attending the Continuity and Resilience Today conference here in Toronto. Uh, that, you may remember, used to be in May, um, but it's been moved now to um, the October timeframe. I think it's October 7th and 8th um, here in Toronto. So if you see me wandering around with my handheld recorder, please come over and say hi, and uh, maybe we'll get you on the show. And I'd like to thank everybody at Stone Road and their product, Boast Assessment, uh, which helps you uh, keep track of where you are in your disaster programs, you know how you you've done on your BAIA, how you've done on your testing, and where you need to focus uh, your orders. All self uh, assessment stuff, and it's uh, lo- uh, quite health quite helpful. So check them out, boastassessment.com. For longtime listeners, you may remember that almost two years ago, believe it or not. Uh, we had a guest from California representing the, uh, oh, now let's say, I hope I remember this right, a past president from the Business Recovery Managers Association. Uh, yep. uh, look, yeah, good. I got it right. Good. <laughs> I didn't have that written down in front of me, so I was going by memory. <laughs> um, and we talked with Julia Halsney. And Julia has come back. Uh, to talk to us uh, about some lessons learned and the recent uh, last summer, last fall, I I believe it was, uh, wildfires in California. So I'd like to welcome back to the show, Julia Halsney. Julia, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you back. I always enjoy having people come back and share new new ideas and new thoughts and experiences they've gone through. So I was really happy to, uh, you know, have you reach out and say, hey, would you be interested? And of course. <clears throat> and I even got to uh, meet you uh, for about, what, 10 seconds at DOJ yeah. <laughs> in Phoenix? <laughs> so we've, we've actually met. <laughs> I can say that now. Now, it, and just in case anybody didn't listen to that episode two years ago where you talked about um, – uh, oh, here's another one I didn't write down. East Bay Municipal Utility Utilities District. District. eBay Mud. Yep. Oh, good. Right. I remember the eBay <laughs> mind, what it stood for. <laughs> Will you talk talk to us um, about um, what you guys do down there? So, uh, sure. 
just in case anybody didn't hear that episode, and for anyone who wants to know, that was back uh, March 22nd, 2018. You can go in the archives and, and listen to Julia's other show. Uh, could you give us, uh, you know, one or two minutes, uh, a, a bit of, about yourself and tell us what you do and, you know, where you are and sure. what brought you here? Sure. So, so I work for East Bay Municipal Utility District. EB Mud is what we call it for short. Um, we're a water and wastewater utility in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're an Oakland-based company, but we have um, we serve a large uh, portion of the East Bay. Um, for water and wastewater and go all the way up into the Sierra foothills where our source water is. And then uh, wastewater is a smaller group, so we serve about 1.4 million customers in water and about uh, 680,000 wastewater customers. And uh, we're a public agency. And I started my career actually as a chemist and um, worked my way through environmental chemistry and that kind of thing and then moved into... Uh, laboratory work, and that's where I joined East Bay Mud in 2001 and um, worked as a laboratory supervisor here, and then they created this business continuity um, manager position. I was fortunate enough to be selected to be in that position, and I've been in the position for, gosh, it's um, been since 2005. So, um, and what, what I'm responsible for is we have about 22 different business continuity plans. Some are at the work unit level, some are at the division or section, and some are at the department level, depending on how autonomous and how um, complex their business functions are. And we've had uh, business continuity plans in place since 2001 in response for those old folks that remember Y2K. (laughs) And and so um, I work in conjunction with our emergency preparedness and security manager, and uh, we have about 1,800 employees, um, over 56 staff facilities, including wastewater treatment plants, water treatment plants, and administrative facilities, as well as service yards. So that's kind of us in a nutshell. And and just so everyone knows, uh, I'm one of those old ones who remember Y2K. (laughs) 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 Now, we're going to talk about the... uh, Oh, actually, I just remembered something else. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you kind of made some suggestions about business continuity plans, right? And that's how you fell into the role? Because I think you made a joke in the last show saying, maybe, you know, sometimes I shouldn't have made those suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, originally what happened was um, there was a special leadership program that was initiated within the district where they had Um, district work that was important that needed to get done, but they never had the resources to do it. And so as a part of that leadership program, they assigned six months projects to different people that were in that leadership program. And I happened to be assigned business continuity, which I had a background in emergency preparedness, but not in business continuity. And on the water side, it's, it's pretty rare. Most places do have um, process contingency, but the business function Business continuity, they don't have. Um, even though, like, in 2005, the governors in California signed a law that required all cities and counties to have a continuity of operations plan, um, for a water agency, they didn't necessarily fall under that. It depended on if they were part of the city or county or not, or an independent entity, which we are. 
And so anyway, uh, my project was to review our business continuity plan, where they were, and uh, what the industry standard was, and what the gaps and recommendations I had for going forward. And one of the recommendations I said was, you need a full-time permanent person who can con- coordinate it. Previous to that, it had been pretty fractured, and it was left up to the individual work units to f- complete the BCPs, and oftentimes you got a real mishmash of some really great and some not so good and everything in between. And so um, when they heard that recommendation, they said, oh, that's nice. We can't afford that. It's not in the budget. And then sure enough, a year or so later, they decided, well, maybe there was something to that. And so that's how that position was born. And then I applied and and I was successful. And here you are. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> I knew it had something to like something to do uh, if memory served correctly. You know, you made some recommendations, and yeah, boom, there you go. <laughs> yep. Well, well, I was very today, fortunate. Oh, the management ahead. team really supported this from the beginning, so that's really it's helped keep this program yeah. alive and vibrant. Good. I'm glad you have that support in place. Yeah. So let's talk about the California wildfires. Uh, can yeah. you give us a kind of an overview of you know where this was, when this was, you know what what was going on? So, and um, we we have fire season like most other regional areas do, but because of the drought, um, the fire seasons have been even um, more severe. And the concern they had a big fire in Santa Rosa in Coffee Park that was all over the news. They had a big fire in Napa that. Uh, was all over the news, and it was traced back to, in some instances, uh, failure on um, Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E, our electric company in California, um, faulty wires or a transformer blowing or something to that degree. And so as a response to that, PG&E had established what they call a public safety power shutoff. And um, this has been an effect in San Diego for a long time. In Southern California, they've had some very severe fires, and um, they've already initiated that, but it hadn't been initiated in Northern California before. And so it was very controversial. There was a lot of issues around that. But the idea was that in high temperatures, strong winds, and dry conditions, they would consider that a high fire danger period, and then PG&E would proactively shut off power to parts of the Bay Area during that time frame. So they had been talking about it for, I want to say, six months, in tw- or well, actually over a year in 2018, 2019. They had already been talking about it for a while before we even got into the fire season. Um but at, at, what happened was in October, they decided to pull the plug. Now, we had been preparing all through that, and I can talk through what kind of what we did and how we managed that. But basically did, what would happen you, What is, did you mean, sorry, before, before you go too far, what did you sorry. mean by, you know, they decided to pull the plug? What do you well, mean literally, it's the, I mean, that's the way I think about it imagery-wise, but that's not really what they do. But they shut off power to key areas. And ah, so, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and that could impact our facilities. So, um, so they shut down grids, and these are these are uh, high power lines that may be impacted by a fire or could potentially spark a fire. And then their response is to then go back in um, after the the high winds have died down or the 
conditions had changed and then restart the power again um, in those areas. But, you know, they're, they're expecting people to have generators or um, some other alternative power source or something to keep um, themselves safe and um, in power. But this included businesses as well as residents, anybody so it, who was on that grid. So everyone in the, the grid where you are, right? Is that right? Well, that- well. So our facilities span miles. So there were. So what happens is they they look at first a red flag warning is declared by the National Weather Service. That's when the the high winds and the conditions are um, such that they are going to have winds in key areas. Um, mm. And then they look at the humidity level. So if it's below twenty percent, um, then that is also a trigger. And then the last one is. They look at sustained winds, generally above 25 miles an hour, but wind gusts in excess of 45, depending on the location and the site-specific conditions, such as temperature, terrain, and local climate. And then they look at the condition of the fuel, so what what's on the ground and what's the vegetation and moisture content. And based on that and observations, PG&E, their Wildlife Safety Operations Center, and field Crews, they might decide this is a this has hit a pivotal point. We need to shut down power, but they they do it in a concerted way so that we kind of get a heads up. It's not like surprise you just lost power. What they will do is actually identify the areas where they think this would happen, and they try and give us as much notice as possible. So we have provided them with a list of our critical facilities. Um, we do have. For most of our facilities, we actually have uh, backup generators, but we don't. We would prefer not to run them on generators. We would prefer to deal with it, you know, have them stay in power. So, um, yeah. and also then it drives the whole issue of um, fuel and everything else that subsequent to that. So, basically, the timing of it goes. So, the PG&E customers get notified through calls, texts, and emails, and then the city, county. And agencies such as East Bay Mud get not- specific notifications. So we have a one-to-one point of contact with PG&E, and they would call our agency and let us know um, that this is coming. And they try and give us uh, 48 hours notice. And then 24 hours, they update that. And then just before the electricity is turned off, then they, they let us know. And, um, and then they give us notices during the the outage, and then once the power has been restored. But the PSPS event could last anywhere from two to five days, depending on what's going on. So, so uh, um, base, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, so, sorry, I just had a, a, a <clears throat> excuse me, a, a question. They, they're turning the power off because when the power is running at full tilt, it could cause a fire in ex- when the conditions are in extreme heat? Am I, I just want to make sure I understand right. that correctly. Yeah, okay. so a power line could come down because of high winds. That could spark, or a transformer ah. might uh, fail, and that could spark a fire. So um, they they basically, you know, try and limit it as much as possible, isolate the grid as much, you know, so they're not doing wide swaths of people that are out of power, but in some instances, they don't have control over, you know, how many people are going to be impacted, but they try to do their best to minimize it. 
Ah, that's um, what I was, I was trying to wrap my head around that going, why would they turn the power out just because there's wind? But now I understand. It. It's all that combination. So they wouldn't do it just for wind. They do it for those, the, also the fuel and vegetation. It's sustained wind, um, the moisture content. You know, if it's really, we've had droughts uh, on and off through um, the years here in California. And so that really just mm-hmm. adds more to it. And then the trees overgrow and they potentially when high winds they could knock down the power lines you know that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff if the vegetation is dead then it's a stronger you know possibility of that happening and and Um, california gets a lot of um oh what's the name of them uh and i'm not sure where in california but uh oh the santa ana winds that's it santa ana winds and you get a lot of um the effects of el nino too right with all the winds that come off the pacific So the Santa Ana winds are mostly in Los Angeles, but yes, we do get high winds in Northern California as well. Uh, so when um, when when they send out the notice, typically what they will do, they know where our key facilities are, and so they let us know, hey, here's the list of facilities we think will be impacted. So we we can identify, you know, with our electricians when we're going to have to send them out to uh, connect. Some have a default that will connect to the generators. Others don't, so we have to send people out there. And then we want to make sure that while it's running that everything's going okay, so we have to send our folks out there to deal with that. And then, of course, when the power comes back, then we also have to go back out there and make sure everything's okay. Yeah, and get um, all, hopefully back to quote-unquote normal. Right, right. And 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 they have ranked facility or um, power outages, um in different areas like tier one, tier two, and tier three. And so um, that's based on their grid and and the vulnerability and what they see. So um, they do it in phases. They may not do all tiers at the same time. They may only do one or two tiers. Depends on what's going on and how they um, see the future. They have a pretty um, extensive emergency operations center, which includes meteorologists and all kinds of experts to try and predict the weather and the potential damage. Um, but some of it's art and some of it's science. Um, it's really a mix. Yeah, Mother Nature will do whatever she wants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We're talking with Julia Halsney from eBay Mud, and we're talking about the California wildfires, and we will be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Today we are talking with Julia Halsney from eBay Mud, and we're talking about the California wildfires. Julia, uh, a couple of quick questions from the uh, first segment. You said, uh, you or you mentioned the acronym PSPS. What does that stand for? That stands for Public Safety Power Shutoff. Public Safety Power Shutoff. Okay. And you mentioned uh, that uh, you will receive, or you guys receive a list of, um, you know, potential impacted facilities. What do you do when you get that list? Do you divert power? Do you just shut centers down cold? What, you know, how do you respond to that? And how do you prepare knowing that so, that's coming? Um, so typically, um, when we get that list, we don't shut down power. But what we do do is confirm that we have backup generators for our critical facilities. Um, and we do have, for for say, for example, for our really highly critical facilities, we already have pre-staged uh, built-in emergency generators. It's a no-brainer. But there were some uh, pumping plants and um, other facilities where, based on the way it was actually um, designed, there's no there's no ability for a generator to be pre-staged there. Either the fence line doesn't allow for it, it was never plumbed for that, or any of that stuff. So in preparation for this, knowing that it was coming, one of the things we did was do an assessment of all those uh, facilities that uh, were pre-identified as what uh, PG&E had called Tier 3, which would be an extreme uh, threat areas, fire threat areas, and Tier 2, which are considered elevated fire threat areas. And so what we did was we went through and identified those that we could that we needed to add generator capacity there. Um, and so we installed some, and then we rented some. We rented 29 generators um, and oh. pre-staged those. So, um, and then worked to make sure they had fuel, tested them, and made sure they were in place before the power went out. 
And then we were working very closely with PGE. They had phone calls um, three times a day to give us updates and status on what was going on, you know, because sometimes the schedule shifted a little bit, what they thought they were going to turn off. They didn't, um, that mm. kind of thing. And um, just because they give us the list doesn't mean the list is actually accurate because um, in this last event, they had a couple facilities that were on the list. They didn't lose power, and a couple facilities that weren't on the list did lose power. So, um, you know, it's like I said, it's an art, not necessarily a science. They can give you as much information as they can, but um, some things change. So, those shutdowns that uh, you experienced, how long were they for, or did they vary depending on conditions, like you said? Well, it was interesting what happened. Actually, we considered it one long event, but there were a series of two events, three events that actually happened in October. So the first one lasted 48 hours, and then we had 24 hours, and they shut down some more. And then we had uh, um, less than a 12-hour period, and they shut down a couple more. So if you look at the scheme of things, they considered it three separate events, but in our, our EOC never stood down because it just was one long event with uh, different uh, facilities going on and off at that time. Um, cause, because of our geographic area, our spread was so wide that, that we got hit in a couple different areas at different times. Were, were the shutdowns um, automatically, you know, uh, um, well, how, do, how do I say this, uh, automatically predetermined as in duration, like the first shutdown will be automatically 24 no. hours? Unless otherwise, it was you know, it was based on they would give us an estimate, some kind of mm. you know we think it'll last this long, but it was really dependent on the weather. And if the winds calmed down, then they would go back. And then um, one of the things that they had an issue about before they returned power, they needed to go out and inspect the line. And they had some right. lessons learned too about their process of inspecting the lines and making sure when they established power. So they, they were using drones, they were using people and trucks, they were, you know, doing all the things that they could do to get to the remote areas to make sure that the lines were okay when they went back to full power, that um, they weren't going to actually, there wasn't a failure of any kind. Um, but in the end run, what, what happened was it impacted two of our water treatment plants, 57 pumping plants, 45 reservoirs, and we had 21 cathodic protection stations, and 10 regulators. So it was a huge number of facilities that hit us. And the, uh, one of the water treatment plants is one of our um, workhorses. We, we never, ever, ever shut that plant down. So <laughs> it was a huge impact for us. So what we did was we used our existing inventory of portable pumps with generators and then added a, an additional 29 rentals for portable generators to mitigate those power outages. And um, that was kind of, you know, we, and then prior to the event, one of the things we did was we, um, we operated our reservoirs at the top of the range. So we filled them as full as we could to minim, and then we asked our customers to minimize their water usage. And then um, we deployed the staff and emergency equipment, the generators and the portable pumps so that they that the staff could then handle connecting and operating the gen, generators testing and determining their run operation and timing so we knew when fuel would be needed so um that's kind of the pre-work that we did now you did so, you have to do that for all those facilities cuz that's a lot 
It is a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So we had, and it took a while. And so um, we did a lot of planning ahead of time. So we had a year's notice. So we were working this out all through that year until October hit. So we had even done a tabletop and a functional exercise before this even hit so that we, we kind of knew where the gaps were and the vulnerabilities so we could shore those up before the October timeframe hit. You know, that's, it, it's going to sound terrible, but that, that sounds almost a bonus that you were able to prepare for a disaster. Right, and, and that way <laughs> you know, we were because fortunate. You know, not everyone knows that you know, at a certain time frame, we are going to get hit by you know, XYZ. Yeah, yeah, it was real. And, and actually, even the event itself, I was, as far as emergencies go, we were very fortunate um, because they weren't longer duration. If, the, if it had extended longer, it probably would have had a more significant impact on us. But um, we were able to prepare ahead of time. So we had tools in place to communicate with our customers. We were, you know, posting stuff on social media. We, we were able to um, notify our customers if, they, if their area was impacted, what we were doing, and that kind of thing. So we, we were able to do a lot more outreach because we knew it was coming. Um, so our, our customers knew to expect this, what they could do to prepare, and that kind of thing. And uh, what we always like to say, a lot of people lost power, but nobody lost water. So that to us was a success. So you you had no fire damage and no smoke damage, but it, I guess if you hadn't prepared, you could have, you know, right, experienced something. Right. So how how much yeah. preparation? I know you just went through some of the things you did, but how much preparation did that involve? Like, did you have all the the whole area, or I should say, the whole company, the whole areas within the company? You know, um, attending these tests and knowing, planning like every possible facet you could think of, or or just kind of narrowed the scope a little bit because, yeah, from your description, it sounds like you did uh, a lot of preparation. So that's got to take up a lot of resources and time. It does. Um, we did use our subject matter experts and our um, area of responsibility. So our operations folks kind of took the lead on this. We actually developed a mitigation and response plan and as a part of this to look at um, the overall process and then have kind of a grab-and-go checklist of the things that we needed to do. But we really wanted to make sure we had all the stuff in, in process before this hit so that we understood what the potential was and that we were prepared for it. So, um, you know, we looked at our reserve fuel, how much fuel do we have in, in the various um, – emergency generators and and what what did those generators power and what what other issues would we have um, and um, our reservoirs we we do for red flag warning that's where the fire danger is high or extreme we have an, a seasonal response to that always we like we trim down vegetation we reduce um, other things um, like work outside that could potentially create a spark, those kind of things, um, and mm-hmm. fill our reservoirs. But um, this enti- in, entailed much more than that, than our r- routine seasonal. So we have our, an emergency operations team that we follow, uh, incident command system, 
And so that was implemented. Our emergency operations director was uh, activated, and then he activated uh, different components. And I wouldn't say it was a full activation of our EOT, but it was a partial activation with a heavy focus on operations and planning to make sure we had the resources that we needed and we had set key objectives every operational period on what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And then getting information from the field, situation status, and understanding what the guys out in the field were dealing with as far as the power loss and the emergency generators. You know, one of our biggest fears is you get a generator out there and then it fails, and Mm -hmm. and that's when you lose power. So making sure we had stuff in place and mitigation and backups to the backups, that was really a big part of it. Backups to the backups. You know, I don't think a lot of people think like that. (laughs) You meant... You mentioned something about people in the field. Uh, mm-hmm. Does that mean that, um, you know, and you also mentioned drones. So did that mean throughout this crisis, through as the fires were going, and I'm not saying people were in the middle of the fires, but were people staged throughout your, um, I guess, area of uh, responsibility to keep an eye on things that nothing does break down? So, so kind we, of like lookouts, we have so oper- So we have internally, we have an operational control center that actually monitors what's going on and can see water levels and operations of of the individual water treatment plants. And then we had facility staff that were responsible for managing and hooking up um, the generators and making sure that they had fuel. So they would be out at the the actual site. And then um, as a part of the normal emergency operation team and activation we we have we establish an operational period and we have staff for that and then they one of the components of that is situation status so that person is kind of a focal point of where everybody reports in and then we generate status reports so that everybody kind of knows what's going who has power who doesn't are there any issues what do we need to establish um if it had extended out farther, we might have started asking to borrow some equipment and staff from our mutual aid partners, but mm-hmm. uh, we were fortunate we didn't have to do that, that it stopped soon enough. Well, the good thing is, uh, you know, considering all the, um, uh, well, up here, all the pictures we were seeing of the California wildfires, you guys made it through, it sounds like, pretty much unscathed. Yeah, I would say I think uh, the biggest issue for us, actually, for the fires um, was our staff that was impacted. So some of the people lived in some of the areas where the fires hit, and so they lost their home and lost everything. And so that was horrible. I was going to go there next, wondering, you know, how did did staff deal with the situation? But you were operationally, you you made it through thanks to all the, the preparation work, but internally from an employee perspective, there were some impacts, which must have been tough on the company as well. It was. We had uh, one of our facilities, which um, is up near our water source. It's a very rural area. They were impacted by a fire. It wasn't last year, but it was the year before. And every single person on the management team was impacted and evacuated on Friday evening at five o'clock. So they just pick up you know, they were notified, they went home, and then they were told to evacuate by the sheriff's office, and then several of them lost their home. And so come Monday, 
the staff showed up at the office and none of the management team was there. So they had to invoke their business continuity plan, their succession plan. To, so they called the director and said, what do we do? And he said, what's your business continuity plan say? And sure enough, in there was a succession plan and it said who was in charge. And so that person took over and then managed the office until people could return to work. But um, other than that, the other thing that we did as a agency is um, we wanted to give those people time to figure out what they were going to do. Um, so we gave them some time off to be able to do that and um, make sure that their family was stable and, and everything, and they had a place to stay and that kind of thing. Well, it's good that you had some of those things in place too, you know, because I, I, yeah. a lot of that, you know, we're talking right now at the, hopefully it's just uh doesn't escalate more, but I could be wrong. The coronavirus Coronavirus. situation right now, and you kind of what you just went through. You kind of need those exact same plans, you know, succession plans. The you know helping you know uh, HR plans. I'll just call them lump lump it all together. You you know to help people out. So it's rather interesting that you had some of that in place and could leverage that for fires. Right. So one of the things that was an outcome from this event was we, you know, in our BCPs, we talk about an alternative work location, and a lot of people say, oh, I'll just telecommute. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what does that mean, and can you really do it, and would you have full scope of duties? Could you actually execute at that level, or is it, I can just check my email? Because um, you can't, I mean, although it seems like we get a million emails and you could spend eight hours answering emails, that's really not the case. And so you have to be able to do your full scope of duties or at least those critical functions. And so if you, if you don't have access or that capability from home, whether it's access to files or systems that you use, how can you really telecommute for longer than a day? Probably not very well. So that's one of the edicts that came from our senior management team based on this whole uh, PSPS event was they wanted all the BCPs to test their alternative work locations. Because what if your primary business location lost power? What would you do? Because mm-hmm. all of ours are rated for life safety. And, and of course, uh, if it's a water treatment plant, you can't move, right? You're not going to pick up and move the water treatment plant. But for the office workers and those folks, they needed to just figure out what would you do? How would you manage that? Um, and so they wanted all the work units to really peel that back and not just say glibly, oh, yeah, I'll telecommute. They wanted them to actually practice that. So that's, that was the charge for this fiscal year was to, to do that for our exercises. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that now with the coronavirus. Uh, you know, people just work from home. But I've been, I worked through SARS. And <laughs> it's not as easy just work from home. For the exact reasons you just said, access to you know some systems or files, you know, or anything along those lines, you can really only do so much. So it's interesting right. that right. one of your lessons learned is to well, let's see how far we can go and what can and cannot be done, and then I guess from there you'll identify what additional steps need to be put in place. Right, right. And I think well, um, you know with. Oh, go ahead. Um, with the coronavirus, that's definitely something we're looking at because that may end up being one of the solutions is social distancing and telecommuting and how viable is that, especially, you know, when you think about as an agency, so we have 1,800 employees. Not all 1,800 employees is it viable for them to telecommute, but 
can your pipe even handle 500, right? Yeah. How many could the, the pipe handle and your systems handle from remote? And so that's one of the charges our IT group is to really flush that out and say, what are the options? How flexible can we be about that to make it so it's, it's more viable? Well, I know what IT will say, having worked with them for years and years. Just give us money, and we'll, then we'll go make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, now they're so paranoid about security, so that brings a whole other issue of how much security yeah, do you true. have on it, and are you making sure that you're not uh, setting yourself up for a hacking or something? Yep. So. Well, on that, we've come to the end of our second segment. We're talking with Julia Halsney uh, from eBay Mud. We're talking about the California wildfires, and we're going to be talking about some lessons learned uh, when we come back. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Julia Halsney from eBay Mud, and we're talking about the California wildfires and lessons learned. Julia, in the uh, last two segments, especially the the last one, um, you started touching on some of the lessons learned uh, from the California wildfires. Can you give us some more examples? Because I know there's some things you probably haven't been able to touch on. But can you also let us know things that maybe uh, uh, have room for improvement, let's say? Sure. So um, I think the... The luxury that we had um, was that we could plan and that we had a year to kind of come together with this, weren't scrambling at the last minute. Um, and and also the idea of going through the tabletop and exercise, the functional exercise with the staff really, really helped because then they knew what what's my role, what's the expectation, what are the potential pitfalls that we need to account for. Um, I think... Uh, we, we actually have been training and training and pushing and 
shoving people to get comfortable with incident command system and how the EOT functions and all that great stuff. And um, they were finally able to put it into practice. And that was a big wake-up call for, oh, so that's why we do it that way. (laughs) Oh, now I understand why you need this form. And so all that stuff kind of really resonated with people, and it really made it understandable and logical for them. So that was kind of nice. I think on the things that we could do better, they include things like um, we, this was a kind of sustained effort for us for a week and a half of almost 24-7. Not full staff, but those activated, they were, I mean, towards the end, people were starting to drop. And you could tell Uh they were hitting their max. And so one of the things as a lesson learned out of that was looking at our staffing and how we create shift work and what makes sense. And you, you get these people in the emergency operations center, they want to do the work. They, they really, and they, you have to shove them out the door sometimes and we yeah, have to be yeah. able to do that um, so that they can execute. Um, and then uh, one of the things that we were dealing with, so we had all these sites that had different generators and all these people working on different things a lot of information coming in, but I would consider this a smaller event. Our biggest hazard is an earthquake, and in an earthquake, we're going to have a huge amount of data coming from the field and the media and our staff and all over the place. Well, we need a way to uh, process all of that and vet it and then distribute it, make sure it's going to the right people. In a couple instances, you know, you get an email distribution list and somebody forgets one person. And mm-hmm. um, and then they drop off the chain, and that was a person that you should have had. And so really looking clearly at how we manage our information and then disseminate that in a way that makes good sense. So those are a couple big lessons learned. Um, we are preparing for the next event, which is anticipated to come this October as well. That's our fire season, September-October time frame. And we had, we had absolutely no rain in February, so that's a real bummer. And so with the conditions, we may be looking at um, the potential for this to happen again. PG&E has done a lot of lessons learned, so they've learned better how to communicate and how to uh, focus in more. They, they, In some instances, when they did the power outage, they um, put a huge number of people out of power, um, and they might be able to limit that and reduce that scope. And so they're looking at that, but also... Um, how they notify and communicate with people. We had a really good relationship with them. It started rocky, but towards in the, when the event happened, it was stellar. I mean, they they really stepped up and gave us all the information we needed and communicated often and with a, a really good information. We don't know how that's going to work in this next event because they're making some changes and how we fit it structurally into their notification. Where it's not clear to us. We are having a. Um, conference call with them in April to kind of talk through that. So hopefully we'll resolve any issues related to that. Um, and then now that's interesting I think you the, said that because I was going to ask a question. If, if you're working with um, the local or state authorities to make sure that, you know, any lessons learned you captured um, that involve others, you're reaching out to them and saying, Hey, this is what we found worked or didn't work uh, you know, between us. You know, how do we resolve this for the next time? And you're doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, we, the, so we do coordinate with the 
cities and the counties, especially because we're one of the critical infrastructure with water and wastewater services. But um, we found going directly to PG&E was the best way to get information, and and they may change that to where we have to go through the city, county, state, and and that might make it more cumbersome or delay the process. So that's one of our concerns going forward is whether we'll still have that direct connection to them. Um, and, and then one, one of, of the their other lessons. Sorry, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, maybe that's one of well, their lessons. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll finish my comment quickly. Okay. <laughs> maybe that's one of their lessons is that they, you know, the information overload on their side was too much. So if they, but it worked for you, uh, you know, so you don't want it to change, but they have needed to change. So I guess by talking to them, hopefully you'll find some common ground, you know, uh, as a part of the lessons learned. Yeah, I do think that was one of the struggles they had was how they, I mean, they were setting up so many conference calls, and um, it. I mean, I just could imagine that was a full-time job in itself. Um, and then to take people offline to provide the status updates and still respond effectively was kind of tough for them to balance all of that, uh, I think. So that may be why they're they're looking at that process a little bit more closely. But what, and what I was going to say is one of the other lessons that we learned was about the generators. Um, we did add some fixed generators to those sites where we could. But again, like some of our, our facilities, the footprint is such, if we put in an emergency generator, it's actually sitting on the street. So we can't just leave it there indefinitely. So we would still have to um, have to deploy it at the time of need, um, you know, or you know, as the season progresses. And that's what what we really did last time was we we saw when the season started, we pre-staged these. And then when the event actually happened, we already had them in place. So we're, we're establishing another contract to rent generators. But as you can imagine, we're not the only puppies out there looking for a generator. And so mm-hmm. getting them is more difficult and the prices are higher now. So um, we're, we're, purchasing some and renting some as a result of that because it just doesn't make sense. So So, that's some of the other things that we're looking at. So I'm curious after this, these events occurred, when, at what time frame did you start, you know, reviewing what went well, what didn't, and how did you go about doing that? So um, we follow um, the HSIP guidelines, which is the Homeland Security Exercise and Evaluation Program, uh, HSEEP, and that that's a uh, exercise program, but we apply it for our events. So anytime we have an event of any kind, we actually um, do an after-action report and summarize what happened, when it happened, all that stuff, and then the lessons learned, and um, we identify any corrective action tasks that we have. Um, based on continuous improvement, trying to make it better with specific deadlines. And then we track those for completion. But what we did do, which was I found really valuable, is um, after the event, we actually held a workshop with our sister agencies. We had a bunch of mutual aid uh, sister agencies in the area, and um, we invited them to come as well as a representative from PG&E and from the Department of Health, because they are connected to us. If we lost water uh, pressure or something like that and had to bo- had to issue a boil water notice or a do not drink, they would right. be a part of that. 
we didn't have to do that, but if that had happened, they would have been a part of that. And so we did a whole workshop on lessons learned, uh, what we could do, and room for improvement. And so that was really powerful, not just for us, but for our sister agencies, some who were impacted and some who were not. So they could, instead of having to go through the event, they could actually learn from us. And so that was very powerful. Um, So we're using that as a template going forward, um, identifying some of these areas that we saw we needed to improve and maybe um, some ideas for future exercises. We're actually going to conduct a workshop before the season starts in the next few weeks for the next crew that might be impacted by this so that that way they can be prepared for October this year. Well, keep me updated on how that goes, uh, you know, especially with the okay. coronavirus type stuff, because maybe you can come on uh, the show and give us some more lessons learned. Because there's some really good stuff you guys have put in place that you know see, sounds so basic, but I think a lot of people really don't know it. You know, and you you captured a lot of good information here. So kudos well, to everybody to very much. <laughs> believe yeah, believe well, it or not, I we only very have fortunate. Yeah. Good crew. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got just under three minutes left. What do you have any final thoughts on the the wildfires? What you experienced and where where you want to see or feel going forward? Well, I think this is our new normal. I do believe that um, this is not going to go away for us. It may morph and evolve uh, going forward. Hopefully, they'll be shorter in duration, less of an impact. But I think. Um, We've got a good um, emergency response plan in place. We've got a mitigation plan in place to to help us overcome when it does happen and make sure we're communicating well with each other and the stakeholders. Um, We actually, our template that we used for this response plan, we're going to leverage that and use it for other hazards that we see, and that includes the coronavirus coming up. We have a communicable disease response plan. We're, we're updating it right now. It's actually under review uh, for publication, hopefully by Monday morning. But um, that we looked at a lot of the things that we learned in this PSPS event and applied it to that because there are some definite similarities in what we would do and how we would respond and, and some of the mitigation measures as well. Well, well, that's great. Uh, I'm really happy to hear all the good things that happened uh, there and that, you know, unfortunately, you know, maybe some people were um, impacted and I feel bad for them. But overall, it's good to hear all the preparation that you guys had in place and continue to put in place. And I, I really want to uh, stress that I like hearing this mitigation plan versus, you know, always a response plan. And that always right. seems to be a difference between, you know, a lot of people. They always have these how do we continue when something happens? But you don't hear a lot about well, why don't we mitigate things up front, you know, because that'll make our response easier. So, uh, you know, yeah. kudos to, to yourself and your team. Thank you. Well, we've come to the end of our show. So, Julia, thank you very much for sharing uh, your lessons learned and your experiences through the California wildfires. That was October 2019, right? Right. That time, that time frame. So thanks for sharing, you know, um, all that stuff. I hope uh, listeners take away quite a few uh, nuggets here because there were some really good things. I, I'm always scribbling notes and I got pay, three pay, four pages here. So, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so a lot of great things, you know, um, so thank, and thank you for reaching out and joining us uh, 
And as you mentioned, you know, if there's anything else that's going on, please feel free to reach out. Maybe we'll bring you back right. um, with how you guys dealt with the coronavirus, maybe, or even well, one of your exercises. Absolutely, my pleasure. Um, and I, you know, I think these kind of programs and um, all the people in this field tend to want to share. So uh, one last plug I would say is network, network, network. People are happy to share their experience and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can always reach out to your peers and they're happy to help and share. Well, and on that note, I think that's the perfect spot to end. Thanks, Julia. In the meantime, everybody, stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.